The first 11 verses of John 2 present for us one of the most profound sections of Scripture, and maybe really the entire Bible, especially when the implications of the story are fully understood. The miracle that's recorded in this chapter of Jesus turning water into wine was not only his first, in, in, in some ways, most famous miracle, but with the exception of the resurrection, in many ways, the turning of water into wine might have been Jesus' most significant. As such, our strategy this morning is we're going to read through the text, then we're going to unpack what happens, we'll work through that, and then we'll close by discussing kind of the significance behind it all. So we begin John 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So his mother turned to the servants and said, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there, Six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So Jesus said to them, again, these being the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water, now note, that was made wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Then we're told that this is the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, in order to unpack what's, what's actually happening, let's begin by setting the scene. In verses 1 and 2, John says that on the third day, there was a wedding. The wedding, we're given the location. It was in Cana of Galilee. We're also told that the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. And Jesus and his disciples had received an invitation. So they're invited to the wedding. After calling Philip, and having an exchange with Nathaniel, whereby they decide to become followers of Jesus, and this was all recorded at the end of the previous chapter. It appears that Jesus intentionally leaves an area in the south known as Bethabara, and he heads north along the Jordan River Valley, back up to the Sea of Galilee. This is the region, the geography. And he does this to specifically attend this wedding. Again, John has said that they've been invited and it appears that Jesus took an RSVP very seriously. He was going to get to Cana for this wedding because he had been invited. When John tells us here, when he opens, that on the third day there was a wedding, from the flow of his narrative, it's likely this was three days from the close of the previous chapter. Uh, literally, the text would probably be better read that on the third day from departing Bethabara, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And, and that detail I only point out 
because it will play a significant role in our application of the text later on in our study. Cana, the, loca- the, the locale, the city, is an interesting place. Historically, we know that Cana was a small Jewish settlement situated on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was located very close to Capernaum, a short distance from the city of Nazareth, which would be inland, working down the Valley of the Doves. If you're a student of such things or care, Cana was so tiny uh, that John's the only gospel writer that really points it out, mentions it, mentions her by name, mainly because the majority would just have lumped it in with Capernaum, which was more of kind of the, the larger, more dominant uh, city, which happened to be the home of Peter uh, and John. It was also the location where Jesus would, would kind of set up his headquarters when he was in the Galilee. In those days, a wedding. So we have a little town, but we've got a big wedding. Weddings were a big deal, huge deal. In Hebrew society, weddings were a communal affair. It was a community celebration, especially in a small town, right, where everyone knows everyone. This would have been a big deal. We also can, can surmise that this was probably a, a big shindig because there were servants that were helping facilitate the affair. It was a shindig. Large gathering, big celebration, small city. Now, aside from the fact that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and at this point, his disciples would include Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. Jesus' mother, Mary, was also present. And it seems that Mary, who, it's kind of an odd thing, that John never mentions her by name in his gospel. He just refers to her as the mother of Jesus. She seems to play a significant role Um, in the facilitation of the wedding, which tells us that the bridal party is likely one of two things. It could have very well have been kin to Jesus. So it could have been a brother, could have been a sister, could have been a cousin, could have been a family connection, which is why Mary is so involved, or at least a close friend. So Jesus knows everyone here. Uh, Jesus is connected. This is a family gathering. Now, before we examine what happens at the tail end of these festivities, I do want to make kind of a side observation. I love the phrase. Again, look back at the text. You might want to highlight it or circle it, or if you have a tablet, do none of those things, but somehow emphasize it. I love the phrase that Jesus was invited to the wedding. Jesus was invited to the wedding. Like whoever the unnamed bride and groom happened to be, like they make a really, really wise decision, don't they? I mean, when it's all said and done, like they they invited God, you know, to show up. You know, they're going through, uh, you know, they're scratching out certain people that they don't want to invite, but they get, they get to Jesus, and it's like, well, I mean, he's the son of God, uh, also related. We're putting him on the list. And he travels with an entourage, so we'll put them on the list as well. I mean, there's this, there's this kind of casual angle to it, but I love the fact that they invited Jesus to a significant event. Like, this was their wedding day, and they wisely are like, you know who we need at our wedding? We need Jesus. <laughs> We need Jesus there. We need him to bless it. We need him to be a part of it. We need him to be involved. Now, aside from the the obvious implications of inviting Jesus to your wedding, if you happen to be in the process of of planning one, you know Jesus, beyond that, wants to be involved, included, invited to all the significant events in your life. Like he loves you that much. 
And because Jesus' is, is very presence tends to naturally lead to his active involvement and blessing, it's to your advantage to invite Jesus to be included in everything, even the small things. And my guess is that if you, if you invite Jesus to your shindig, he'll accept your invitation because he takes RSVP seriously. And if there happens to be some event on your calendar that maybe you don't think it would be good to invite Jesus to. Maybe you have a business trip plan and some time with the guys and you're like, you know, that might not be the right time to invite Jesus. Uh, he'll be there anyway. So just be careful where you take him. The party's happening. They're enjoying the celebration. Nuptials. Families together. But as the party continues, John, he tells us that there was this brewing crisis that reaches a critical mass. Verse 3 says, when they ran out of wine. Now, that's not good at a party. It's not good at a celebration. It's definitely not good at, at a wedding. It's, it's not good when the shindig includes family. You don't want to run out of the wine. And we're told that in response to this, that Mary comes to Jesus and she states the obvious. They're out of wine. Now, no doubt this is a party foul. But since wine, according to the rabbinical teachings, symbolized and brought with it joy, a host could not run out of wine. It was actually a taboo and Hebrew culture, of all of the things that you didn't do. I mean, you, you might s slack off on the location, you might not have enough tents set up, but the wine was essential. It had to happen. What John's describing them running out, this is a cultural faux pas. This was a no-no. This was not good. A lot of shame, a lot of disgrace would have been carried by the host. Insults to the, the other half of the, the bridal party. And since this is the case, Mary's involved to some degree in the execution of the wedding. Maybe she's the one that forgot the wine. She comes to Jesus with an obvious concern. She declares, Jesus, they have no wine. It's emphatic. It's, it's a declarative. The implication of bringing the crisis to Jesus is that Mary's like, I have a problem. There's no wine. And you need to do something about it. I mean, that's... That's kind of, she's coming not to just let him know. Hey, did you hear? They ran out of wine. No, they ran out of wine, and it's time for you to do something. I've never asked you to do your God stuff, but like right now, in this moment, I need, I need some of the Son of God action. Now, admittedly, admittedly, Jesus' response to his mother, it comes across, let's just put it nicely, as odd. Okay. I don't know if you felt that way when we were reading through it. It's kind of clunky. It's odd. He says to her, does he? No, mom, woman. What does your concern have to do with me? And then his reason for this is, is he articulates, my hour has not yet come. Now, if this verse doesn't strike you to a degree as being bizarre, a little experiment. Next time your mother calls you and asks you to do something for her, just call her woman. What does your concern have to do with me? And see what happens. 
Like I, like, I can't even imagine Quincy or Theo turning to Jessica and saying, woman. I mean, hell and fury would fall down from the sky. Now, for starters, in the original language, which I hope you know that, Jesus was not English. I know the movies depict him that way. Kind of a Fabio character with a thick British accent. Man should not live by bread alone. He didn't speak like that. He wasn't English. He wasn't white. He wasn't Anglo. He was a Jew, right? The original language is Greek. So the Bible was not written in English. It's written in Greek. And so sometimes when you, when you run into a, like a, a difficulty, like, man, in English, what Jesus says here lands odd. It's helpful to go back into the original language and kind of just deconstruct it to see a little bit more of the particulars. And if you do this, the idea behind the word here, woman, it's actually, it's, the idea is very difficult to translate into the English language. Like the word itself, it, it, it does maintain respect. Like it's honoring. Like it's not as though Jesus is snapping at her. It has a, a measure of respect, but it does, and this is what's interesting, is it does articulate a measure of relational separation. So, so by saying woman, Jesus is, is honoring. He's not being disrespectful. But in, but in using the word, he's articulating something to Mary. He didn't say mom, mother. There's a, a disconnect. Woman, that's, that's honoring. But we're, we're do, something's happening here. You see, Jesus is, is letting his mother know that since now his ministry is going to begin, his relationship with her was about to change. And it would. Like Mary will be known as a disciple of Jesus and, and not as the mother of Jesus, though she was. Mary would always be Jesus' mom. And I'm sure, no doubt, that he lived in such a way that honored the important role that she would always hold in his life. But Jesus wants her to know in this moment that from this point forward, the will of his heavenly father would take precedent over the will of his mother. In a profound way, Jesus is taking a moment here in this instance. He's reconstituting his relationship with Mary away from being son and mother. Jesus would have to be her savior as well. It, it may also be that John's, his emphasis of Jesus' use of this term woman is that he, he does this to draw the audience back to Mary's real identity, which I think is a really interesting theory to this. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, when God is laying out the curses, so he's cursed the man, he's cursed the woman, he's now cursing Satan. God makes a prophetic statement. He says that I will put enmity between you, speaking of the devil, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Who is the woman that produces the Savior it, it's Mary. And so it may be that John, who does a lot of parallels to the book of, of Genesis, is saying, hey, th this woman, this is the woman that produces the Savior. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. Further evidence of Jesus' reconstituting of the nature of their relationship can be found in the question that he asks her in response to her request concerning the wine. Look at it again. He says, what does your concern have to do with me? I am not a Greek scholar, 
but one who is, a man named Edgar J. Godspeed, Goodspeed, he observes that Jesus is, like the statement implies an independence of, of action. Again, it lacks an English equivalent, but he believes that it's more of a declarative statement aimed at Mary, kind of like this. Uh, woman, don't tell me what to do. Don't direct me. I got a plan. Don't tell me what to do. Again, though Jesus has spent a great portion of his life submitting to the supervision of his mother, no doubt, great love for her from this point forward, reiterating it, he wants her to know that she no longer has authority. Everything is changing from this point forward. Now following the exchange, Jesus, he, he then says, he says, my hour has not yet come. And I want to admit that the implications of that statement, I've wrestled with. I've wrestled with it. You see, on the surface, the plain reading suggests that Jesus is telling Mary, hey, don't tell me what to do. I'm sorry the wine's out, but like, it's not time for me to start my earthly ministry. Like, my, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to start it. The problem with that interpretation, which is common, is that directly following, you know, reconstituting his relational priorities with, with, with Mary, from an earthly mother to a heavenly father, what does Jesus do? He performs a miracle anyway. He's like, don't tell me what to do, woman. My hour hasn't yet come. And if he's talking about his ministry, then why then <laughs> does he start his ministry, right? I mean, it seems kind of odd. In a measure of what I would just call theological gymnastics, one commentator I read trying to reconcile this point he, he actually makes the claim that between his statement to Mary, my hour has not yet come, and the next verse, while it's not recorded in the text, God the Father told Jesus it was now time to start his earthly ministry. And, and I think that reading is quite a stretch, you know, where the Bible is silent, don't be speculative. Aside from the plain reading, I will say that things are kind of further complicated when you read this statement into, into kind of the larger context of John's gospel. And I'll do this for you. In John 7, verse 6, 7, verse 8, 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20, we will find variations of the phrase repeated by Jesus that the time had not yet come. He doesn't just say it here. He says it later on as he's in ministry. My, my, the hour has not yet come. However, once the cross and the resurrection and the ascension have come into view, Passover, Jesus is going, he will repeat in John's gospel that the hour had come. He'll do this in John 12, 23, 12, 27, 13, 1, 16, 32, and 17, 1. Which, which tells us that when Jesus says the hour, like what is he referring to? He's referring to the moment that he's going to fulfill what his ministry was about. When he offers himself to die for the sins of the world. And then would be resurrected three days after three days in the tomb, and then ascending to heaven, where he takes his rightful place in glory at the right hand of the Father. So when Jesus says, my, my hour has not yet come, in context to the gospel, he's saying, it's not, it, I'm not the Savior yet. Like, I'm, I, I'm not doing that yet. That's what he's referring to. Now, how do you tie all this into Mary's request about the wine running out? The truth is that in its literal context, Jesus' statement, my hour has not yet come, doesn't make any sense. And yet, I don't think it's supposed to make any sense. 
Like, I think when Jesus says this, it was supposed to land weird. It was supposed to be odd. And keep in mind, John describes this whole story. Verse 11, he gives us commentary, right? He places it into a context. He says this whole thing, this whole story, was the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana. Like signs. And then he adds that these signs intend to do what? Manifest his glory and cause his disciples to believe in him. So there's a purpose behind this story much deeper than the surface level. Like in a way, I don't actually think that John understood what Jesus was even saying or what the purpose behind this miracle even was. Until when? Well, until the hour actually came for Jesus to fulfill his mission by dying on the cross. And then John looks back at certain stories. He's like, we missed that. It makes so much sense now. The context, the application. Again, John is clear in his writing that there was more to this miracle of turning water into wine than what the plain reading suggests. Jesus isn't just trying to save the party. This was the beginning of signs. Now, again, let's leave that idea there. We're going to come back to it at the end of our study. I I love Mary's response to Jesus. She ignores him, right? I mean, she really does. True to the form of a mother. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She's like, oh, Jesus. And she she doesn't even respond to him. She rolls her eyes. She turns to the servants. And then she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Right? Now, uh, side note, can you think of a better bit of advice? Again, if you want to highlight or mark, like whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Pretty good advice, right? Whatever Jesus says to you, you should do it. Let me repeat it in case you miss it. Whatever Jesus says to you, it would be wise for you to do it. Do what he says. These servants, they've been equipped with marching orders. Whatever Jesus says, they're going to do. John then sets the scene. He continues. He adds that that there were present these six Look at it, water pots of stone. And these weren't just any water pots, we're told. That these were water pots according to the manner of purification of the Jews. So there was this religious, cultural connotation to these water pots. And they were big. I mean, they were big. Containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece, which is one of those details that that I love about the gospel writers because if they don't know something for sure, they're not going to speak definitively about it. Like John's like, I don't know if it was 20 gallons or 30 gallons. They were just big, 20 or 30, somewhere in between, right? They were large pots. And they would provide enough water for the guests to the wedding to clean themselves before the wedding feast. And again, John notes that they would clean themselves according to the manner of purification that's outlined in the law. So there was a whole procedure to to cleansing and purifying and whatnot. Practically, beyond just you know, getting the muck and the grime off your hands and feet before going in, there was a religious connotation behind the washing. There was a particular way that you did it. It was all symbolic. As John recounts the story, he remembers how Jesus instructs these servants to fill the water pots with water, which is a good thing to do, I guess, with water pots. 
and then draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, if you had been instructed to do that, you might have a bit of hesitation. Like, why am I going to take a cup of dirty water to the master of the feast? And yet Mary had been clear, whatever he tells you, do it. So they're being obedient. They're just doing it. They fill the, the water pots to the brim. And then John would never forget what happens. So they draw out some of the water. And they go and they present it to the master. Look at verse 9. We're told that when, when the master had tasted the water, and then this is the first mention, that was made wine. When did it become wine? We have no idea. Did it become wine as they're pouring the water into the pots? I don't think so. Because then they would be like, wow, we've got pots full of wine and not water. Was it when they drew some out? No, because at that point they'd be like, wow, look at that. <laughs> we got some wine instead of water. Like they, they, they give the master of the feast a cup of water, and I think it's as he drinks it, it transforms into wine. It's, it's an incredible miracle. We're told the master, when he had tasted the water that was made wine, he had no idea where it came from. Servants knew. So the master calls the bridegroom. He's like, everyone at the beginning sets out the good wine. When the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. He's blown away. Again, this is not how things were done. Although the water pots have been clearly filled with water, John tells us that by the time the water reaches the lips of the master of the feast, it's, it has been, and, and this is an interesting phrase, made wine. And not just any wine. But John goes to an effort to let us know that it was a wine of such an incredible quality that it defined, defied basic party logic. Like the word made. It means that the wine came into existence from nothing. It is quite a miracle. Now, anyone that's ever thrown a party knows that you always start the night off by offering your guests drinks of, let's just say, a top-shelf quality. And you do this because everyone's sober. But then once your guests, and I'm going to read the text, have well drunk, that's when you switch over to the, the bottom-shelf booze since no one can tell the difference anyway, right? And yet, the master, he's blown away because the opposite has happened. He takes a sip of this wine. He's shocked. He's like, you guys, y'all kept the good stuff to the end? That's crazy. Someone's made a mistake. Now, before we continue, I do need to point out that the word used for wine Absolutely 100% refers to wine. <laughs> like what you think of wine. This is not grape juice. This is wine. Furthermore, the statement that when the guests have well drunk can be translated when the guests are drunk. And again, that's very hard to accomplish if you're only serving your guests welches. Or, as some scholars would say, watered down wine. Again, you'd have to drink a lot of it. Like Now, no, no one advocates for drunkenness. But what's amazing to me, and, and you can't overlook it, the very first miracle of Jesus, A, he's at a party. So he's partying. And B, 
there's wine. As a matter of fact, Jesus facilitates it. He transforms water into an alcoholic beverage. Now, I don't, I don't want this message to take a hard right-hand turn into like a discussion about alcohol or the fact that the Bible nor Jesus ever calls for abstinence. But in my preparation, I came across a great three-point recommendation by David Guzik, who's one of my favorite Bible commentators, about alcohol and if you choose to drink. I think that this is wise. He says, one, if you're, if you're under bondage to alcohol and it's therefore an addiction, it's a sin. It's true. Don't drink at all. Two, if you do drink, don't get drunk. The Bible clearly presents drunkenness as a sin. A sin that can carry with it dangerous repercussions. And three, when drinking, be excessive in your moderation. Though the Bible never prohibits you from drinking, we are called, and, and this word is used often, to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded. The story that John records for us presents it straightforward. Let me, let me quickly recap, right? Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana. A wedding his mother's facilitating. The celebration is going swimmingly until an unexpected turn of events. They run out of wine. Whether it's Mary's fault or someone else, we don't know, but she feels the responsibility to do something about it, so she comes to Jesus for help. Though Jesus takes a moment, reconstitutes the nature of his relationship with dear old mom, he does instruct the servants to fill up six pots, uh, stone pots with water that were typically used for ceremonial cleaning to draw then out some of the water, present it to the master of the feast. And an act of incredible faith, the servants obey Jesus. At some point in the process, this water that they had drawn out miraculously transforms into awesome wine, a Merlot. Now, you understand what's happened. Simple. But I want to take our, our remaining time and I want to discuss the significance of what happened. Because it is, it is very large and impactful. Don't forget, John, he's already defined the whole occurrence as a sign. Which means that it's more than a miracle. There's something big happening. So let's begin with the timing of the miracle. It's not an accident. The timing is not an accident. In fact, in the flow of John's gospel, and really the overt ways that John intentionally parallels his writing to the Genesis record by presenting the recreation of God's original order marred by sin. Again, if you, if you open up John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And you read through that, and then you go to Genesis, and in the beginning, God created the heavens. Like it, it, it completely parallels a creation narrative. One was the original creation marred by sin. John is presenting Jesus as the Savior sent to restore what had been marred by sin. A recreation, a renewal of sorts. So with that in mind, when John introduces the miracle by telling us right from the beginning that the, the turning of water into wine occurred on the third day, that's, that's important. Let me explain. Again, the Gospel of John, it's unique. It's unique because the author provides us a thesis at the beginning. The first 18 verses of chapter 1, John explains who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he accomplished, and then the rest of the story substantiates it. So he presents 
a thesis. Jesus has come to restore what sin destroyed. And then, what's, what's interesting is chapter 1, and look at it, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 1, verse 19, presents for us, in effect, the first day of this recreation. And in doing so, what, what's, what's presented? John records an interaction with John the baptizer, uh, one that he has with the religious leaders, so the first day. But then following that story, chapter 1, verse 29, look at it, we're told, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So between verses 19 through 29, that would constitute day one. And, and follow me. Verse 29, the next day, which then becomes Jesus' baptism, that's day two, okay? So we're, we're walking in order. After this event, John 1, verse 35 Mark's day three. We're told, again, the next day, John stood off with two of his disciples. And on this day, Andrew, John, Peter, all each have a personal life-changing encounter with the Lord. But after that, look at verse 43. We read, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said, follow me. So Jesus' interactions with Philip and Nathaniel constitute and compass day four. Okay, so you're with me. So taking that into account, John here, in the opening of the second chapter, when he says, the third day. Well, what's, what's, the, what's the third day? It's the third day from the fourth, which would place this wedding, and therefore Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine, happening on day seven. And again, if we're paralleling creation, that's significant. Because on the seventh day of creation, what happened? God rested from his work. So he created days one through six. On day seven, God kicked back in the lazy boy and was like, I'm, my work is done. Now, in contrast, in this recreation where Jesus is going to fix what sin has destroyed, we have six days. This wedding is the seventh. This is the seventh day of recreation. And what do we see Jesus? God in the original was done working. Now in this recreation, Jesus is working. Jesus is busy. And you know, it's not an accident that on both seventh days, you have a wedding. In the original creation story, in the seventh day, what happened? We had the first wedding. Adam and Eve, the two shall become one flesh. A celebration. And now on the seventh day of recreation, what also do we have? We have another wedding. God attending another wedding. Let me read you Genesis 2 verse 1. Again, chapter 2, verse 1. The heavens and the earth, the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. And then contrast, John 2, verse 1. On the third day, the seventh, there was a wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited and when they had ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, do something about it. While God rested, on this seventh day, there was an issue so pressing, so urgent, that Jesus had to act. To do what? To save a wedding. Now, our time this morning is limited, 
But you do need to note that the law of first mention, so like the first time something's mentioned in the Bible kind of sets the trajectory for how you understand it through, through the course of Scripture. The law of first mention indicates that the Sabbath day, the original, the seventh day, the Sabbath, had absolutely nothing to do with man's work at all. Instead, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, was designed originally, set apart, sanctified, commemorated, to recognize what? The completion of God's work. That's what it was about. The Sabbath was God-centric. The point of the Sabbath, the reason it was holy, was that A, it served as a constant reminder that it would only be through God's work that humanity would be afforded a relationship with Him on the seventh day. And two, since our subsequent actions ruined the original relationship, it could only be through the reinstitution of His work that that relationship could be restored. Man was supposed to take a day off of work to recognize... God's original work, how man screwed it up, and how he could do nothing. Why was man instructed to do no work on the Sabbath? It was to recognize that he could do nothing to save himself or to restore the relationship that had been lost with God. That was the point. That's why it was holy. It wasn't about me resting. It was about me recognizing something significant. And then really, in a way, Moses... In instituting the law, like when it, was, when it was established for man to cease his work on the Sabbath, the whole idea, it, it was to illustrate the reality once a week that humanity needed to stop. You were the problem. You, mess, you need to stop. Just take it and do nothing. Why? Because you've done enough. That was the idea. Like, stop it. Just chill out. Stop working to fix a problem that only God can remedy. Again, the Sabbath was instituted to emphasize that God's favor, a relationship with God, one restored, could only happen through God's work and not man's. In effect, the seventh day has always illustrated the amazing grace of God. Though God rested on the original seventh day, as a consequence of the fall, when man sinned, separating him from his creator, what happened? God promptly ended his rest. Like beginning the eighth day, man messed it up. So what did God, God was, I got to get back to work. And he instituted a plan. God ended his rest, busied himself with the work of redemption. You see, the Sabbath day should always remind you that the only way your relationship with God can be fixed restored is not through your best attempts to do it, but rather through the completion of God's perfect work in Jesus. Now, should there be any surprise that this very miracle of water being transformed by Jesus into wine (laughs) happens on the seventh day of John's recreation narrative? And it's with that context established that I want to unpack what's really happening in this story. Consider the problem that Mary wants Jesus to remedy. What was the crisis? You had this glorious wedding celebration. And you should keep in mind that weddings are also symbolic, right? They symbolize man's relationship with God. You had a, a wedding celebration that was about to be ruined, destroyed. They ran out of wine. Joy had been replaced with sorrow. They were desperate. 
The party had soured. The celebration was about to cease. People were left at this party without anything to quench their thirst. Nothing to drink. The wine was gone. So in an act of pure desperation, Mary wisely goes to the only person she knew had the ability to solve the problem. We got a whole party of people who are thirsty, Jesus. Can you do something about it? Uh, Consider, aside from the problem, the mechanism that Jesus then uses to perform the miracle. Like, Like John is clear that Jesus specifically chooses six stone water water pots, (laughs) ironically, used by the Jews for ceremonial religious purification. They were religious vessels. But where do we find them? You have a crisis. People are thirsty. And you have these, these, these relics of religion empty. They could do nothing. Nothing at all. At best, all they could do is hold water for a temporary cleansing. Like, no one would ever drink from those water pots, yet alone expect to find fine wine. Secondarily, I I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus performs the miracle at a distance. Like, he's not hands on here at all, is he? He's kind of nonchalant about it. But he performs the miracle by inviting the participation of the servants, doesn't he? Like, it was their obedience to his commands that Jesus used to accomplish an amazing work, right? They stepped out in faith, pursuant to Jesus' instructions. They took empty vessels, they filled them to the brim, they drew out water, and it transforms into wine when it hits the lips of the master. Amazing. Obedience and faith. But consider the fundamental nature, then, of the miracle. While Jesus commanded these pots to be filled with water, as the master of the feast takes a swig, it was not water at all. It was wine. At some point, a complete and total transformation of the water took place. The water that Jesus asked these servants to offer instantly, in a moment, became wine when it was consumed. And Jesus didn't add anything to the water to make it wine, did he? He just transformed water into wine. Are you beginning to to see kind of the work that Jesus is illustrating in this first miracle? You know, because of sin, the wedding, the party, it's in a bad place. The joy that's offered by the world It always sours, doesn't it? And then at some point it runs out in your own life. Oh, you were drinking the the wine that the world was offering, but at some point it was out, it was gone, you were thirsty. It soured. And no man had a remedy for your situation. Not only that, religion was empty, worthless. Nothing seemed to satisfy. Nothing seemed to stick. Six pots of stone presented at this wedding feast only provided water. All it could do was to cleanse the outside of a person. Though the law incorporated 
water for a person's outward purification. The law, it could never address man's internal thirst. Moses, the law. What was his famous miracle? He turned water into blood. Because the law only judges a man. The law only serves to tell you how bad you are. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a measuring stick. It's God's perfection. It's this standard that I look at and I compare myself. And then, and then no one can say, I'm a good person. You know, when people say, I'm a good person, what they're really saying is they're saying, I'm better than that person. It's through a self-comparison. You think in your mind, someone that's not good, and you're like, well, I'm better than them, so that must make I'm good. It's the way the world works. But what happens is that Jesus came, lived amongst us, and was the perfect standard. If you want to know if you're a good person or not, don't compare yourself with your neighbor or the person across the street or the person at the end of the table you're sitting at. Compare yourself to Jesus. How you doing? That's why the Bible says that none are good, no, not one. When I'm comparing myself to Jesus, the standard, the law, all it does is condemn a man. All it does is tell me how far I have fallen, how far I have to go. It doesn't tell me how to get there or provide me a remedy. It's only judgment, water into blood. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that all the world might be saved through him. He came to save, which is why, what does he do at the beginning? Hey, the law, Moses, it turned water into blood. It damned you forever. I've come to take water and make it wine. Joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. I've come to quench a thirst. And understand, Jesus, he really does offer to the world something much different, doesn't he? He offers water that not only purifies a man, but becomes wine that quenches his thirst. Jesus provides a living water that when consumed instantly turns into a wine that yields that individual lasting joy, happiness, merriment. And this is what Jesus has called his servants to draw out and to give the world. Not a wine of judgment, but water that transforms to wine. Honestly, it's this reaction of the master of the feast that says it all, right? Upon tasting what Jesus offered, he says, you've kept the good stuff until now? You know the world, think about it this way, the world always offers its best first. It's the selling point. It's the branding. It's the marketing. It always offers its best first, knowing that in time, lull you into a comfort, it'll sour, it'll run out. But this man took one taste of what Jesus was offering and he knew he was drinking something that was radically different. Now, the entire purpose behind this miracle was to illustrate the reality that Jesus had come to offer the world something different than religion, different than the world and its system Jesus came to offer a thirsty world something to drink that would turn to joy. Like Not only is Jesus' mission focused on providing a lasting internal joy as opposed to a temporary outward cleansing, but what he offers the world 
only gets better and better and better. It's like fine wine. How cool is it to think that Jesus calls his servants, you and I, to offer this world a drink from a well whose water turns to wine? It's pretty cool. And Jesus, what does he do? He transforms the person. He doesn't cleanse the outside. He offers something that purifies the inside. He transforms the heart of the man. Religion only cleanses up the outside, but not with Jesus. See, it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus came to make us into. It's a transformation. Again, with these things in mind, and in the context of what this miracle really represents. Doesn't that statement, my hour has not yet come, start to make sense? When you understand what's really happening, what he's really saying, what he's really doing, what's being articulated and illustrated. Though his hour had not yet come, the hour where he would accomplish his mission to save the world, the moment when his blood represented in what? Elements, the wine, would be spilled, cleansed, to redeem us. And this moment, when Jesus starts his ministry, his first miracle, he changes water, something common, into wine. And in doing so, he gives his disciples a first glimpse into what his entire work would be. What he had come to do. On the seventh day of recreation, we find Jesus not resting, but he's busy working to save a wedding lacking wine. What a sign for Jesus to begin with. So, Father, Lord, that's what we ask of you.